Well, we find ourselves uh, coming very close to Easter. It's only two Sundays away, and I am astonished at how quickly it came upon us. It seems like just yesterday that I stepped through these doors for the first time, and we had Christmas, and we went through Advent together, and here we are almost to the end of Lent. And I just cannot believe how quickly time has flown. And so as we enter into this time of Lent, or sorry, as we enter this Easter season and bring it to a close, I want us to look at, at over the next three weeks, this time in Jesus' life as he was heading to the cross. Oftentimes in the church, it's called the passion. It's the, the time, the events leading up to Jesus' death and crucifixion. And so as we lead up to this time, we want to focus in and think about what was it that Jesus was going through and what were the events taking place in His life up to this point that ultimately led to the cross and for us, His resurrection and the good news that came with that. And so if you have a Bible with you, you can actually find our passage in John chapter 11. I know the bulletin says Luke, uh, and that is wrong. It is, it's John chapter 11, and we're going to be in verses 45 through 53. And in this passage, we see this plot to kill Jesus. The, the ultimate thing that would bring Jesus to his death. The conspiracy around everything that led to the cross. So in John chapter 11, starting in verse 45, it says, Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Let's pray. Good and gracious God is this word comes forth this morning. Lord, let them be your words. 
Lord, let the Holy Spirit come and fill me up that I might speak truth, that I might speak to each and every one of our hearts, that we would hear the message that you have for us this morning. Because truthfully, God, I don't know that I have the right words to say or the words to speak, but I know in my heart that this is the passage we are to hear. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would allow me to decrease, that you might increase all the more, and that your good and glorious name would be magnified among us. That it would be in our hearts and your name would be on our lips. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, growing up, I feel like I had a lot of really solid values instilled within me. A lot of things that, that were good and great and that led me to make really good choices in my life. I feel like that, at least. I think my parents would say that as well. I think they, they, would, they would say that they raised me right and that they instilled within me a lot of really solid values. But one of those values specifically that I can think about is that one of the things that my parents really taught is that you have your limits. You are limited in your ability. There are things that you can do, and there are things that you can't do. And that when there come time to those things that you can't do, that you should ask for help. You should be willing to ask anyone for help, that you can't do it on your own, that you would be willing to admit that your limitations have been reached and that you need assistance. And I'll be honest, though, in ministry, this has been really hard for me. You see, I like to believe that I take the position that when somebody asks me a question, maybe specifically about Scripture or about a specific topic, that I have the answer for that. That I know the answer that I am supposed to give. That I've done my time in seminary. That I've done all the research. That I've, that I've read the scriptures enough to know answers. But I think the truth and the reality is that even though the values that were instilled within me. That when you don't know or that when you can't. When you've reached your limitation. That you should just admit it. In ministry, this thing happens in me where I'm like, I need, I need to say something. I can't just let somebody ask me a question about Scripture or about a topic and, and, and not have an answer. To just say, I don't know. Because truthfully, I feel like I fall into this trap of needing to look a certain way. Of needing to be a certain way. I, I want and need to look competent, like I know what I am doing. I need to look like I've got it all together, that, that when any of you come to me, that I have the right answer to say. Maybe more than that, I want you to see me as better than I actually am. I want you to believe that I am, I am the best person for this job, that I am the only person for this job. I know that it gets within me that I desire to be seen in that way. I want to have all the answers to your questions. 
I fail to acknowledge to myself that I am perfect, that I'm not perfect, and that I'm not always right. The truth is that I don't have all of the answers. The truth is that I do have my moments of incompetence. I really am not better than I seem because the reality is that I'm still human. I still sin. I'm still broken. I still make mistakes. I love how Paul put it so eloquently in Romans. I still do the things I hate. That's my nature. And it's okay for me to admit that that is true. And the reality is there are so many times I have no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) I don't. I don't know what I'm doing. Sometimes I just make it up and hope that it works out. I mean, just recently, a few weeks ago, our computer in the office completely crashed. And we lost all the financials for this year. It's, it's been so fun. But I want everyone to believe that I know what I'm doing when it comes to working on computers and fixing computers and making sure that all the accounts are back to normal and everything is just hunky-dory. It's all good. It's all good. We got this. But I don't know what I'm doing. I was getting questions asked to me about payroll because payroll didn't get done that way. I don't know. But I came up with an answer. I certainly came up with an answer. Because I needed to come across in a certain way. Maybe more so what the reality is that I didn't want to lose a certain amount of power that I felt that I had because I had the answers, because I was the competent one, because I'm the pastor of this church, because I have to look and feel and be a certain way to be any different would mean that I failed at my job. To loosen my grip would mean that I didn't do right. And my guess is that in most of you, you've had that same value at some point instilled in you. That, that belief that yes, at the heart and at the core of it, that you are willing to admit that sometimes you are wrong. Am I right, husbands? We're always wrong. No. Um, you're sometimes wrong. And that's Okay. That you're not perfect, they don't have it all together, and that's kind of a good thing. That you have your limits, that you can't always go beyond what you're capable of. Actually, remember growing up, there was this one time that uh, I played tennis when I was younger. I, I still play tennis when I can, but tennis was kind of my sport. And my dad really. Uh, encouraged me in that and wanted to go play with me. And so there would be these times that we would kind of go as a family to the tennis courts and we would play tennis together. Well, I remember this one time. uh, It was me and my dad were kind of hitting, playing singles against each other. 
And uh, my mom and sister were off on another court doing their thing. But it was me and my dad, and we were hitting. And, you know, I was, I was younger, you know, a little bit more athletic than I am currently. Um, but certainly more athletic than him. And there became this moment that he trying to go after a ball that maybe in younger years he would have easily gotten to. Uh, and then all of a sudden his calf balled up and uh, he collapsed to the ground. Fathers, sometimes you can't do what you used to, even though you want to look a certain way to your son. You can't always do the right thing in that manner. You, you try to do more than you are currently capable of, right? And, and, and mothers, too, have this desire to want to look, look a certain way maybe to their daughters, that they've got it all together and they want their daughters to follow in their footsteps. And, and sometimes maybe they go too far because they're not perfectly capable of living up to maybe this fairy tale standard that society says parents have to be. Whatever it may be, maybe a job... Maybe school, where all these tasks start piling up upon you and you have all these things that you have to do and due dates are coming up. And, if, and instead of just admitting that there's too much and that you need help to get things accomplished, you start fabricating stories about how it's going to get done. You start telling everybody, oh no, I've got this, it's fine. I can remember so many times in school where all these things would just come at me, come at, me at once and I'd be like, oh, I've got this. And then like, I would hit the due date and it's like, I didn't have that. That, that. that came and that went. And I should have talked to that professor well before it got to that point. But it came and it went. And so we, f we think that we're abundantly more capable of things than we actually are capable of. But we struggle to admit that we can't do it. Whatever task or project or sport or hobby maybe, we struggle to admit that we are limited. We struggle to confess that we can't do it. And maybe it's because, quite frankly, we don't want to be seen as weak. We don't want to lose our position or our power or our prominence among the people that already see us in a certain way, that see us in a certain light. We don't want to disappoint the people around us because we have to admit our limited capabilities. And so this morning, I want us to kind of hear maybe how things got so twisted to the point that, that people actually plotted killing a man. Plotted killing Jesus because they were so afraid of losing their power, their position, and their prominence. You see, the context of today's passage in John chapter 11 is that Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. He had made his way to Bethany, 
And he had found out that one of his good friends, Lazarus, had passed away. And it says that Jesus wept. And then he told them, well, take me to his tomb. And so Jesus, along with Mary and Martha, along with all of his disciples, and along with all of the mourners that would have been present, started heading toward the tomb. And I'm sure at this point, there's such a gathering of people following Jesus along the way that there are other people that are just like, that's Jesus. I've heard things about him. I'm going to follow along with wherever they're going and I'm going to see about what, what's about to happen. What is Jesus about to do? And so they end up at this tomb and Jesus says to them, roll the stone away. And everybody's like, that's a bad idea, Jesus. He's been dead three days. He smells really bad. But he's like, do it anyway. Remove the stone from the tomb. And so they comply. And then Jesus says to this new hole in the wall, Lazarus, come out. And from that space, a body walks out of the tomb, still wrapped in his death cloths. And then Jesus says to his disciples, Unbind him. This might be his greatest miracle on earth. In his ministry, while he walked it, he raised a man from the dead. And he was like dead, dead. It was three days dead. This wasn't anything that you could mistake as simply asleep, as simply just gone to rest. He was entombed. He was wrapped up and he was placed. And three days had passed. And Lazarus walked out from the grave alive. Now, we might hear that story today and we might think, wow. What a miracle, what an amazing sign, what a wonder. This must be Christ. This must be the one who was promised to come. How exciting. But then we get into today's passage. And in the passage today, it clearly says that yes, there were those that were there, many Jews who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. They saw and they marveled and they believed. But, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. It's not that they denied whatever it was that they saw. But something in their heart said, I've got to go tell the Pharisees. I've got to let the religious elite of the day know what just happened. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. 
And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You know, it's really kind of funny. I kind of, when I first read this passage, I likened it to one thing. And, and I don't know how many of you are, are siblings, but I kind of liken this to sibling rivalry. You see, uh, me and my sister growing up, we had probably the strongest sibling rivalry that I have just ever known. Um, in fact, we ran off many babysitters because we just, we went at it. Um, Mom, I'm sorry, just told everybody that. Uh, but we ran off babysitter after babysitter because we fought so much. Uh, and yes, Jesus can even redeem that in me as well. Um, but we fought a lot. And, and what I see in this passage is, is I see two different groups of people, almost like two siblings fighting for a power, right? Because sibling rivalry and, and, and ultimately comes down to one thing. It's that one sibling is fighting for the affection of a parent more than another, right? Like ultimately sibling rivalry kind of boils down to, well, I want so-and-so to love me more. I want to be the best child. I want, I want to be seen. And so many times our fights would ensue and then one of us would make sure that we got to the other parent first to let them know about what the other sibling did and why they were bad. And they're bad and they're not the good one, but I'm the good one. And then ultimately the other sibling would show up and be like, oh, that's not how that happened. That's not at all how that happened. This is, this is the real story. And then you have two trying to fight for what's really the truth. You couldn't deny that, that probably some fighting happened or, or maybe we broke something. There would be no denial that something was broken. But constantly there would be a fighting for which truth is going to be the one that people hear. Which truth is the one that mom or dad is going to listen to, right? And so I kind of read this and I was like, this is sibling rivalry. You have, you have two groups fighting for this power, for this position, for this prominence among the people. They're fighting for the affection of the people. But here's where it gets interesting the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gathered a council together and they said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? They don't deny what Jesus was able to do. They don't deny the miracles and signs and wonders that Jesus performed. They're not even going to deny that Jesus raised a man from the dead. Because they can't deny who Jesus is, what it is that he has done. But here, in this passage, we start to see the real heart of the religious elite, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We start to see the reality of really their childishness. Because here's what happens when religion infects the heart instead of relationship, you ultimately find reasons to accuse. You find reasons to be frustrated, reasons to be annoyed, reasons to plot and to kill. 
And so they got together, and this is actually quite a miracle in and of of itself. The Sadducees and Pharisees disagreed on so many things religiously. This is like today seeing the left and the right work together and compromise. And they came together because they had one ultimate goal in mind. It was to see that Jesus be put to death. In fact, we go on and we read and we hear from the the high priest Caiaphas. He says, you know nothing at all. It's like, you don't understand. This is really bad for us. Jesus is bad for us politically. We're going to lose all of our power, all our position, all of our prominence if we allow him to keep showing us these signs, if we allow him to keep interacting with the people. We have to do something about this. And then he goes on in 50, nor do you understand that it is better for you, not for the people, but for you, talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it's better for you that one man should die and not that the whole nation should perish. You see, we often get in this place, I feel like, in my own heart especially, where there are things that I would rather die on a hill for than actually realize the truth that's in front of me. And for the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they were so willing to put Jesus to death because of the power and prominence within them that they had already had and they didn't want to lose it. And we have to ask ourselves, what is it within us that might want to put Jesus to the cross? Because we want to hold so tight to our power and our prominence and our position. What is it? What sin in our life is saying, Jesus, I want to give you everything. But not that. Not that part of me. Not this power that I have. I'm not going to give that up. In ministry for me, what that might look like is, Lord, I am, I am not going to release to you the ability to speak in front of others. I want to hold the power of the word. I want to look perfect in front of this church. I want to look like I have everything together. I'm willing To put you to the cross because I am more important than you are. But the truth and the reality of this is that in Proverbs 16, we hear that pride goes before destruction. Pride. The desire to hold on to power and position and prominence is Largely from a heart of pride. A place of pride saying, I am more than, I am better than, I am. 
it. I am the thing. What I think is also ironic about this passage is that John goes on to say that Caiaphas prophesied that day that Jesus would die for the people and not just for the people, but for all that are the children of God and that they would be gathered together as one. Here's the thing about this passage. Here's why it matters to the passion. Here's why it matters as we look forward to the cross and as we look forward to Resurrection Sunday. Here is why it matters. It matters because what the enemy meant for evil through the high priest and through the Pharisees to kill Jesus, God ultimately had a plan for good. What was politically broken in the hearts of these men, God used for spiritual effectualness. That is, that in the death of Christ, all who are called the children of God would be saved. The truth and the reality for us is that as we read a passage like this, we have to ask ourselves, Am I willing to put my pride on the line so that the work of Christ can be seen radiantly through me? I think about one person in Scripture a lot when I read this passage. And in fact, if you ever actually listen to my prayers as I prepare to preach most Sundays when I pray, right after reading the Scripture, one of the things that I say is, Lord, allow me to decrease that you may increase. But these are actually the words of somebody else. They're the words of John the Baptizer. You see, John the Baptizer had an amazing, prominent ministry preparing the way for Jesus to come. He was declared as a prophet among the people. He was having flocks of people come to hear and hear him and listen to the word that he was bringing as he prepared a way in the wilderness. And as he was declaring to them, he baptized them with water in the Jordan River. John had a fantastic ministry. One that any pastor would be like, I want that. But what most pastors might not say afterward are those following words. As Jesus steps into the scene and begins his ministry, John says, in fact, I'm just going to turn to it because he says it so much better than I can. The one who has the bride, that is the church, is the bridegroom, that is Jesus. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. I must decrease. 
Jesus, above all, needs to be made prominent in in every aspect of us, in every power that we want to grip onto, that we want to hold, in every aspect. We have to be saying, Lord, I must decrease that you, you alone may increase. And that the reality of your work on the cross would be realized. That Jesus died not just for one nation, but for all who would be called the children of God. And so as we wrap up this Lenten season, and Lent meant to be a time of reflection, of repentance, of mortification of the flesh, of being willing to give something up for Christ, as we think about this time, as we head into Resurrection Sunday, let us reflect deeper about what it is that Jesus desires for us in our relationship with Him. Let us reflect and pray about Christ. How can you be glorified and magnified in my life leading up to Resurrection Sunday. Lord, how can I put my flesh to death that You might have life? How is it that in Your death on the cross, in Your work accomplished for the children of God, how might they be brought together because of Your work in me? And when we as a church better reflect and are willing to give up the power we hold by acknowledging the limitations that we have, we allow Christ to be magnified and glorified within us. We allow Jesus to become the one instead of ourselves. We allow ourselves to decrease that He may increase. And as we do that, we reveal the kingdom of God to our neighbors and our community in a way that only Christ could reveal. Because He's doing the work that we couldn't do. He's showing the world who He is in us. And so in this plot to put Jesus to death, though it was in hearts filled with frustration and anger and fear, God used it for good that Christ would be glorified. Let Him be glorified in us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You. We thank You that as we enter into this space, as we wrap up this Lenten season, as we look to the cross and to the resurrection, Jesus, that You would be glorified and magnified within us. God, that we would be reminded that the plot, the desire to kill You, 
and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that sin, in some ways, that pride still lives within us. But let us put it to death for your sake. That you would be glorified and magnified in our lives. That you would meet us in our limitations and our capabilities. So that you can be seen clearly to those around us. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.